Luke chapter 13. We're starting a, a, a new section, but of course, as all of Luke, we kind of have a little bit of a roll-in from the previous sections. Uh, if you recall, uh, in, the, in the previous section, in chapter 12, it kind of closes with this failure of the Jewish people, these crowds that have gathered, the nation, to understand the times that they live in, to be aware of uh, their circumstances and and what they're facing. If you look back at um, chapter 12, verse 54, he kind of goes off and he starts speaking about what it means to interpret the times and the seasons. And he tells them, you guys are hypocrites because you know how to interpret the time. Uh, of uh, You need to know how to interpret the weather. You see a cloud rising uh, there in the west, and you know that that means there's going to be rain. You know that when uh, these winds come from the south, you know that there's going to be an increase in heat. So you get that. Uh, but then he tells them in verse 56, uh, you, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. And so he's kind of like getting on them about this uh, because they've seen enough. They've been uh, uh, aware and seen the many miracles that he has um, shown them, that he has uh, operated in a way that has continually revealed who he is. And so there's an expectation that they would understand. But yet uh, we see that his reason for calling them hypocrites uh, is, is because they're refusing to acknowledge him rightly refusing to acknowledge who he is. And then he kind of finishes that section um, in, in chapter 12 by saying, if you don't know how to interpret the time, or, or if you do know how to, but, you, but you're not like responding to it, that, that's a foolish thing. And he finishes up with this kind of analogy about like settling, um, settling with, with uh, your accuser as you're going to judgment. He, he kind of lays out this other parable of, of someone who uh, knows that they are going to receive, um, basically be sent into debtor's prison as they go to visit this judge for a ruling. And he says, it, it's, it would be wise of you, if you know what's coming, to kind of speak to the person that you owe the money to along the way and try to work out a deal. Like, this is your opportunity to do that instead of doing nothing and just being uh, put into this debtor's prison uh, for what amounts to, uh, you know, forever there. He says, you're never going to get out until you've paid the last penny. And so there's this kind of idea of this lack of response, of not interpreting the time and not responding uh, to to change, not being willing to change, not this, not being willing to see the circumstances and understanding that like, yeah, I've got to do something about my life. I've got to make a change. I've got to reorient what I'm doing here. And so this is kind of the situation as we come into chapter 12, uh, because he, he kind of continues on here with, with kind of these two sections that seem like they're not related, but you, you'll kind of get the connection here shortly. And so we start off with this um, new situation here. It seems like it was posed to him from the crowd in verse 1. There it says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. So again, the remarks are coming from the crowd and he's going to speak to this same crowd, same kind of context here. And they speak to him about this unique Incident, this specific thing that happens here, and pro probably um, you know it's a confusing thing to read this. Like, what the heck does that mean? That like there's these 
Pilate's mixing this blood with sacrifices. Like, what the heck's going on here? And realistically, uh, this is a, a very specific um, like piece of news that like was happening in this time. A specific piece of news to this group of people. Not specific that Pilate is spilling blood uh, and he had done similar things before, but specific to this uh, event. And in fact, uh, there isn't really any, um, there, there's several places that are recorded about kind of Pilate doing things like this, but, there, but there's not like one that we can pin down specifically and say like, oh, this is the exact moment. Uh, but here, th- this is kind of a tragedy that's brought forth by the crowd, and they're asking Jesus to respond to it. And, and, and the idea is this, that there is um, this group of people who had gone down to make their sacrifices, and, and in the midst of this, Pilate, um, for whatever reason, he, maybe he's angry or upset about something, or uh, he issues his troops to go down and to uh, break up the what's happening there and the sacrifices, or we don't really have all the details, but in the process of this, uh, he, Pilate's, uh, his uh, soldiers, they go down, and they end up killing those who are trying to offer their sacrifices. So this, that's what he's kind of talking about there, with about the blood being mingled, the, the blood of, of these people who are killed are being mingled with the blood of sacrifices, uh, and so kind of ruining those things. And so basically there's an, an attack that's happening here upon uh, the Jewish people. We don't have a lot of other details about it, but, but this is kind of what's happening here. And, and basically what's happening is it seems as if this group, the crowd, they're asking Jesus like, Number one, what's going on there? And number two, do you have any plans to do anything about this? Right? Are, are you going to do anything about Pilate uh, mingling these sacrifices? Hey, Jesus, just want to let you know that this is what's going on. This is what Pilate's up to. This is what he's doing. Right? This is, this is what they're um, getting at. But I want you to see something as, as Jesus responds here. Jesus takes the situation and he launches into what he wants to get at. This would have been uh, an easy opportunity to respond to, uh, you know, kind of the, the class divide. It could have been an opportunity to respond to the idea about, uh, you know, occupation by the Romans and the illegitimacy of the government. This could have been a, a situation where he could have dove deep into national issues and said, hey guys, like here's how we should think about this, how we should structure this. But instead, Jesus takes this opportunity to issue a warning. He totally bypasses the social. He's not concerned about the social aspects of this situation. He goes straight to a deeper issue, a deeper problem, and has a deeper warning. And so he responds back in verse 2, and he says this, He answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So he comes back with this kind of rhetorical question that reflects common belief at the time. Uh, of course, um, among first century Jews, there was this idea that physical affliction, pain, suffering was often connected to sin. These uh, deformities and, and things like that would have been um, brought about through the sin of an individual or, or connected to the lineage. Of course, you see that this is what the common belief was because Jesus' own disciples uh, share this perspective as they speak to him in John chapter 9. Uh, if you recall 
the passage, uh, there he passes by someone who is blind from birth. And then in John chapter 9, verse 2, his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Right? So this is the, the perspective. This guy's born blind. He must have done something to deserve being born blind. And so it was either this guy's fault or his parents. They blew it. That's the reason for this circumstance, this situation. And so uh, this is kind of common to the time. And so when these people are posing this question uh, to Jesus about what's the situation with Pilate mingling the blood uh, you know, with the Jews, with the sacrifices, two things are happening there. They're speaking there, of course, about um, the, the kind of political situation, but they're also kind of trying to debate and, and speak about casting judgment upon uh, this group of people, like their, their worth. They probably deserve that. Like, it, should we not be upset because they were bad and this is why it happened to them? Bad things happen to bad people? Is that, is that what's going on here, Jesus? Is that what they're asking him? And so, uh, perhaps thinking that these uh, Jews who were going to offer sacrifices, they had committed such terrible sins that while they were going to offer the sacrifices, God didn't let them off the hook, and uh, he ends up allowing them to be killed as a result. This is kind of the speculation, it seems, at the time. And so Jesus poses this to the crowd, and he responds back, and he says in verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He takes this situation that they're bringing to him. Hey, Jesus, do you want to weigh in on the, on the political, the national, the social scene of the time? Do you want to weigh in on this theological concept that uh, those people deserved this, and so this is the reason why they had it? And Jesus sidesteps all of those things, and he says, those are all wrong ways to think about the world. The way that you should be thinking about the world is by considering your own state. He comes back and he says, don't be asking questions about these other things. Don't be asking questions about like what's going on with these people or this. He says, you deal with your own house. You deal with yourself. He tells them, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He doesn't allow there to be a, oh, like we're the righteous people over here. We're not deserving of that, but they're deserving because they experience this. He doesn't allow it to be on the basis of uh, class or, or, or these uh, injustices. He doesn't allow it to be connected on the basis of nationality. He just basically says, y'all better take stock of where you're at in life. You should consider your own situation. He doesn't entertain uh, their perspectives that they might have wanted to get into. He just sidesteps the whole thing and says, consider your own spiritual state. There's a comparison that he, he draws out between uh, repenting and perishing. He says, you are going to perish if you do not repent. You're going to be just like those other people. Those people who uh, went to go offer sacrifices that day, not knowing what was coming, and experienced uh, something that they didn't plan for. He says, that could be you. That could be your circumstance. And so get your house in order. Determine that you are going to repent and follow God. Now he draws out a second instance, again, something that would have been uh, in the news of the time in verse 4. And he draws this out and he says, uh, Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. 
Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So now we have this other situation. The Tower of Siloam is kind of this uh, section that would have been like a water reservoir um, sort of situation that, that fed parts of Jerusalem. And it was um, located in, in, um, at the corner of the south and eastern walls of the city. And there, uh, in this particular area, it seems as what happens is either they're repairing it or there's something going on at the time where, uh, I'm not sure if it's scaffolding that fell or the, the tower itself started to collapse. But in the process of this, we find that uh, 18 people, Jesus names how many people die as a result of this collapse. And he asked the same question. Do you think that these people are worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So same question. Do you think that they're deserving of it? Do you think that this is the reason why this happened to them? Do you think that this is the reason why they're, they're receiving some sort of judgment as the result of their uh, sinfulness and this is why it fell on them? Uh, he poses the same question, but... I want you to see that as he, as he communicates this, he's, he's kind of drawing out two, two things as a contrast between uh, both of these situations. Because he responds back the same with the same uh, answer in verse 5. He says, no, I tell you, un but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there's some... Uh, common ground between the two situations. And so he lays out the contrast by them in a way that perhaps like we're not really aware of. And, and, and what he's really getting at here is that this first incident uh, is an incident that's brought about by human hands. This is something where it's like, oh yeah, Pilate, evil Pilate, he sent some people out to kill people and it got done. And so that, you know, perhaps couldn't have been avoided. But now, if we want to blame it on Pilate, okay, that's the circumstance, that's the situation there, it's his fault. But then we find this other situation with the tower falling, it's kind of like something that's like more of like an, uh, an accident. It's, it's a kind of like a natural causes thing. It's like maybe one stone broke, or maybe like there got like a little bit too much water in there, or, or who knows what it is. But it's not like someone was over there like pushing over the Tower of Siloam onto these people. This is just kind of like totally an accidental situation. And as he says this, you can see that his response to both circumstances is the same. He doesn't change it. He doesn't respond and say, well, in Pilate's situation, you know, he's kind of like uh, operating in a certain way and trying to accomplish. His response is the same. He doesn't deal with the specifics of the situation. He deals with the specifics of the people in front of him. And he tells them, unless you repent you will all likewise perish. He outrightly rejects this perspective that uh, bad things happen to bad people. He outrightly rejects that God is judging through uh, these events to say that these are worse offenders than the others. And he wants to just get to the, the heart of the issue. If you fail to repent, it leaves you exposed to death. This is the kind of the common uh, denominator between these two stories. If you fail to repent, it leaves you exposed to death. In the same way that he has just spoken in 
verse 50, uh, in chapter 12, verse 56, right? Telling them, I'm giving you a way to interpret these things now. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And then he went on and spoke to them about like, you guys know what judgment is coming as you go to face the judge and you're going with your accuser. Why would you not settle that? Why would you not repent? Why would you not change? And now he's, he's pressing in a little bit further to say, these situations, these circumstances that you guys are bringing out as like trying to blame it on somebody else, he says, it, it, it's up to you to make a change, to reorient your life. Now, he, he dives straight into now a parable. Now, the thing about parables are great because they kind of help you understand the urgency of the situation. They help you understand how it should apply to you. And a lot of times, they're kind of like these like shady black, like back doorways to like get you, right? Because you kind of are like, oh, that's a cool story. And then you know, it's like, ha-ha, got you at the end there. That's a lot of times what happens here. It helps us receive the truth more clearly, right? Because you might be sitting there thinking like, okay, well, like, Jesus told me to repent two times, but I'm like, yeah, like, I'm fine, whatever, right? But like, I'm just going to like stay away from like places where Herod sends his soldiers, and I'm just going to like keep an eye out above me for like towers that are going to fall on me. A lot of times we just go for like the most practical thing that's like, okay, so I won't do that, and I won't do that, and I'll just like be really careful so I don't die. But that's not the point. He's calling us to do something that protects us. He's calling us to do something that causes us to reorient our lives, not to try to thwart uh, the danger that may come our way. And so he, he presses into this circumstance in verse 6 through a parable. He told this parable a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig, uh, fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Okay, so here's the situation. There's zero danger happening in this uh, space. So he tells the story. There's a fig tree, and it's planted in a vineyard. So there are other things that are successful there around it. This is kind of a fruit garden, if you will. Uh, there's a place where all of this is here. And as the, uh, the man who plants this fig tree, he shows up and is looking for fruit. He sees none. And he says, it's been, it's been three years and there's, there's, no, there's no fruit on this tree. Now, here's the deal. When he planted this fruit tree... Uh, according to the, uh, the book of Leviticus, he would have had to wait three years for the first harvest of fruit anyways. So that means that this guy's six years deep in this tree. He's not three years deep. This isn't the first harvest. He's come back to see three years of planting it, letting it do its thing, get established, get healthy, start growing. And then three more years, he's returned back to this tree and he sees that there is nothing on it. He keeps coming back to see a tree that should be giving fruit annually and is not. And so he determines that there's not much hope for this tree uh, to produce. So let's just get rid of it. He said uh, to the vine dresser, let's cut it down. Why is it going to use up this ground? Now, he's not being impatient because he's given it three years to get established and three years to do its thing. He has... Uh, allowed it the opportunity 
to flourish. It's in another space that is not inhospitable to trees or to other uh, things that bear fruit. It's there among the vines where everything else is. There's a rich soil. Uh, things are happening. But it refuses to produce. And, and, and so the outrage that comes from this owner is not just that this fruit tree is not producing, but it's also just sucking up the nutrients from the ground, and it's not doing anything with them. It's not giving anything else that can be of benefit to others. And so he says here, let's cut it down. Why is it going to use up the ground? The other vines that are there, other trees are going to suffer as it steals the nutrients away. By having this tree that is unfruitful, it will become a problem. Now, of course, uh, this is uh, an analogy that would have meant much more because throughout Israel's history, they have uh, been uh, constantly connected to the idea of, of vines and, and fruit trees. It's, there's an analogy between Israel being productive and, and being raised up in this way. And so here we find that this, this uh, owner's frustration, his disgust, is um, analogous with God's outlook on Israel's status at the moment. Just as Jesus was saying, like, repent, believe, change, change your ways, settle with your accuser on the way. And then we find that there's the, the vine dresser. And he steps in in verse 8, and he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. So you got this guy who's in there who's trying to tend the garden, who's trying to give it a little bit more time, and he tells, he tells him, like, just, just give me like one more year. Give me one more year. More more patience. We're going to give this a fourth year for this tree, and, and I'm going to try to cultivate it. I'm going to dig around the soil and let more, uh, let it make it easier for water to get into the roots. We're going to uh, let more air in. We're going to uh, fertilize it so that way it will have the best possible opportunity to bear fruit. Perhaps additional care will cause this to, to yield what it is intended to yield. Now, I want you to see this. This tree is an absolute failure. There is nothing that this tree has done to deserve special attention. There's nothing that this tree has done to cause anyone to be like, well, let's give it another shot. This is the most unfaithful tree that could exist. It's just been there soaking up nutrients for six years and doing nothing. It's not following uh, the path that it should be following. And so there's no reason except for the kindness of this vine dresser that's just like, let's just give, let's just, just try again. Like, let's just keep going. There's no reason for this. It makes way more sense to be like, well, let's just cut our losses because we're going to lose, like we're going to, we could plant another tree and we could be, you know, a year deep in that one by the next time. You're going to set back your, uh, your, your timing quite a bit more by waiting. And so this tree's done nothing to receive this attention. And of course, this is uh, indicative of, of God's patience. It's indicative of God's desire to give Israel and to give people every single chance, every single opportunity to 
respond. Just when it's just like, you know, when we are wanting to, to call it quits, when we're write, wanting to write it off, it's just, God's like, no, let's be more patient. Let's give more opportunity. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the reality is, is that the tree does face removal if it doesn't respond, if it doesn't change. And this is uh, what is settled on in verse 9. He says there, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. If it bears fruit, great. If not, you can cut it down. Now, as Luke is telling this, he knows, as Luke's writing this, he knows that he's connecting all the dots that we've heard much earlier in the story. All the way back to, uh, to chapter 3, there's been a threat of this from the very beginning. Remember the words of John the Baptist in, verse, uh, in Luke chapter 3. We read this. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Right? Like, all of a sudden, we've got this kind of fruit theme coming out. Uh... We've got this idea here that, that this is coming to the forefront. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. Don't, don't be trying to just rely on that old stuff. He says, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. He, he tells them straight up, like, if you don't bear fruit, Right? Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this theme is like, it's been building all the way since chapter 3. In Luke chapter 6, verse 43, again, Jesus speaks and he says, For no good tree bears bad fruit. Luke six forty-three. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, out of the good treasures of his heart, produces good, and the evil person, out of the evil treasures, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So there's this theme that's continuing about bearing good fruit and being the type of tree that is operating in a healthy way. And he's, he, we've already been warned, your, your, your tree is going to get chopped down. If you're not bearing good fruit. And so here in this moment, we find that Jesus is, is calling those who hear him to make this change. To determine that you are going to be a tree that bears good fruit. Calling for repentance and obedience. Calling all who are willing to receive what he has, and to allow him to uh, cultivate that ground so that you might uh, bear good fruit. Just as the, as the owner is, uh, or just as the vine dresser here is prepared to nourish this tree and give it another chance, 
In the same way that God is prepared to give Israel an opportunity for repentance. In the same way that God is giving us an opportunity for repentance. And if they fail, then it would be their own responsibility. If we fail to confess him as the king, if we fail to repent and believe, that's our responsibility. Jesus tells us the consequences there in verse 5. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's not hidden. We know what's coming. And so the nation and all who hear this passage, if you're without fruit, you face imminent judgment. And so this warning that you should um, repent is not connected to just those who feel in danger, right? We've seen that because there were those who were, um, who were offering sacrifices, and then there were those who were going about their business, and, this, and the tower fell on them. You don't know the time. You don't know the day. You've got to be ready. You've got to repent. You've got to change your life around. You've got to trust in Christ, in Christ alone. Of course, this comes on the heels of that passage, settling your accounts with your accuser, settling your accounts with God. And he dives straight in here to to remind us that there is an urgency, an urgency to this, an urgency because the tower may fall, the soldiers might come out, but you're going to reach uh, that judge when you least expect it, and you want to settle before you get there. You want to make it right. You've got to respond. The, the, the prime um, problem for all who are in the story is a lack of response, just doing nothing, knowing what you need to do and not doing it. We've got to be a people who are responding, you know, and in fact, that's, that's, that's what, we, what we do week after week. We always respond to him. We are not the initiators of faith, but the respondents. We are not the initiators of anything. It's Jesus who leads his church. It's Jesus who takes us places. It's Jesus who leads his people, and we respond to what he's doing. That allows us to be a people who are always in a position of humility. Always in a position to, um, to recognize that he is the king and that he is going to lead us. We're not trying to be in charge. We're not trying to get our own way. We're not trying to, to be strong. We are trying to uh, respond to what he's doing. And that comes with the recognition of humility. That's what repentance is about, recognizing that you need help. And if you could grow in anything, that's what you ought to grow in, in humility and in repentance. Because you're not going to outdo, uh, you're not going to outdo the people that you're comparing yourself in this world on anything else. I, I remember growing up and 
Yeah, and, and my dad would always tell me, like, I'd be competing in sports. He's just like, you have to, like, like always remain humble. Because when I was younger, I was, like, pretty okay athlete. But he would always tell me, like, there's always somebody better than you. You're, there's always going to be somebody who is faster, who is stronger. There's always going to be, like, you might think that you've, you're it, but that's not going to be the case. There's always going to be someone who's going to show up who's faster, who's stronger, who's going to beat you. That's just how it is. And that idea of humility sends us forward to improve, but mostly in in, in the Christian life, it sends us into actual life because it's in that confession of weakness that we find true strength. And that confession of weakness that allows us to repent and believe the truth of the gospel. There's this there's this guy um, called St. Moses the Black. He's like an old church father from like Ethiopia. And, and he has this, he, he kind of wrote this um, little quote that, uh, or he kind of said this thing that was, was really um, impactful because it helps us understand the competition, right? Because it's like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, protect myself. I'm going to figure out how I'm going to live this life. I'm going to, I'm going to outdo everybody. I'm going to out-spiritual everybody. I'm going to like, as, as tough as it gets, I'm going to read my Bible more. We want to, we want to like press in and, and some of us start to get real competitive in that way. Some of us just like, you know, we're just like, never mind, I'm going to quit. <laughs> like this is, this is hard work, right? We're not all that way. But, but, and so th- this would be good news, good news for everybody. But, but he, he said this, and, th- and this is something that, that really is impactful because w- who we're ultimately fighting against is not just ourselves, but the enemy, right? And, and so th- let me read you these words. He, he, he um, said this, Christians, or, or, or you, you, you fast, but Satan, he doesn't eat. So you, you already been outdone, right? You might think like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to set myself apart. I'm going to be holy. I'm going to like prepare myself. I'm going to, right? Satan doesn't eat. He says, you labor fervently. You work super hard. You labor fervently, but Satan never sleeps. So you're outdone again. You, you lose. Two for two, lost. And then he finishes with this. The only dimension in which you can outperform Satan is by acquiring humility, for Satan has no humility. The only way that we are going to navigate this life is through true humility, through confessing that we need a Savior, by confessing that we need help, by confessing that Jesus is all that we need, and placing our true hope, our true trust in him. When Jesus tells us, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, that repentance is turning from trusting in the traditions of man, turning in from trusting in our own efforts and our own labors, trusting in our own self-righteousness. It's turning from trusting in in nations and states and, and, and political figures. It's turning from, from trusting in uh, our desire to see good things done upon the earth and trusting in Christ alone and letting him do whatever he's going to do and finding your only hope in him. 
And I will tell you, no matter what you're thinking is the right thing, you don't even know how to do it right if you did happen to stumble upon the right thing. Like, oh yeah, like it would be great if these things were this way. You might have like the right idea, but not even know how to do it. Go to the one who really knows what's happening and calls us to, to true life and empowers us to actually live that life. And in that, you will have success. Remember, Jesus told us to seek his kingdom. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so for the Christian to repent is to make Christ your treasure. I'm not going to treasure these other things. I'm going to treasure him. Because if you're going after him, you're always going to have what you need. You're always going to be satisfied. You're always going to end up in the place where he wants you to end up. And this launches us out into mission to help other people know and enjoy Jesus and be satisfied in him as well. And so again, we respond to him, to what he's done. We love him because he's first loved us. We want other people to know him because we find that he alone is life. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you call us to the simplicity of repentance and believing. For those of us who are like strivers and who want to like outwork, that's, it's hard for us to, to stop and to act in humility and to say that we can't, um, we can't do it on our own and that we need you to do it, to yield to you. That's difficult. And then, Lord, there are those of us who um, are easily discouraged knowing that we can't do it, knowing that we're not going to make a way. And there we find you meeting us in that moment and saying that, that you are enough and that you've accomplished it. But we need that constant reassurance that you have done it. And it's not easy to, to stay in that place of just remembering that, that you've accomplished it. And so, Lord, would you remind us that you have, you have finished it all. You have accomplished the work. You have justified us through the resurrection. And that you've led us into uh, new life as we trust in you for salvation. And so we want to repent and believe the gospel. We want to reorient the entirety of our lives around you and to follow you and be truly satisfied in you. And we know the things of this earth that we believe in that we are interested in, they're temporary and they fade away and they don't ultimately satisfy. They might be fine for a moment or two, but they all let us down eventually. But you alone are faithful. You are a firm foundation. And so we come to you. We want to be found in you. And so, Lord, be glorified in your church as we respond to you now. We love you. Amen.